Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of the SportsMap podcast where we are talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation and return to performance. I'm your host, Nick Kane. We had a fantastic chat today with the ex-head of the AOS in Martin Wallen. We talked around athlete monitoring and complementary prevention strategies for both groin and hamstring injuries in elite sport and how practitioners can effectively implement these strategies to reduce injury occurrence on a week-to-week basis. Martin certainly gave us plenty of great clinical pearls to take away from his chat. But before we do jump into that, a reminder to head to the website, that's sportsmap.com.au and check out all our masterclass events coming up with Edna King, who will be doing one event around athletic hip and groin pain and another event on ACL rehabilitation and return to sport decision-making. These courses are happening in Perth, Melbourne and Sydney and selling out very quickly. So for those keen to attend, we suggest you don't wait too long before getting on board, otherwise you will miss out. The advanced upper limb in sport is coming to Melbourne at the end of November and that is now sold out. So anyone keen to get on board that will have to email through to get on the wait list. Now, we're really lucky to have Martin on today's podcast. Martin is a senior sports physiotherapist and, as mentioned, ex-clinical manager at the Australian Institute of Sport. He has an extensive history in working with both athletes and in research around groin pain and hamstring injuries. I had the pleasure to meet Martin when he presented for us at the Athletic Groin Pain Symposium that we ran earlier this year. Uh, There he presented and did some fantastic workshops on adductor-related groin pain and also prevention of groin pain. In today's podcast, we certainly have a little bit more of a, a research background, but Martin really brings it to the forefront of how those findings can be integrated into our daily practice in a sports setting. So hopefully you get some great takeaways and learn a few things. If you do enjoy, please head over to iTunes and, and leave a review. That's enough for me, so let's get into it with Martin. So welcome, Martin. Thank you, Nick. Mate, you've spent many years working at the RS. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a rundown on your pathway towards walking, working at the RS and also a little bit about what you're doing now? Absolutely. Uh, firstly, thanks for uh, inviting me to your podcast, Nick. Um, really looking forward to uh, sharing some of uh, my research and clinical experiences with you and, and the listeners today. And I hope uh, they'll find it useful. Uh, to answer your question, uh, as an introduction, uh, I'm a sport and exercise physio and a clinical researcher, and I've been clinically active in elite football for probably the last 17 or 18 years or so. Spent a bit of time at the AIS, uh, probably over two, 10 or so years. We spent at the AIS and uh, the remaining times in professional football. And uh, it was really that time at the AIS that um, triggered my interest in clinical research uh, which is something that's stayed with me ever since. From that year, I published a case series on rehabilitation of groin injuries in football players and later completed a research master's looking at ankle function and proprioception in football and basketball players. And in my most recent and final period at the IS, uh, I completed a PhD where we looked at uh, alternative and complementary prevention strategies in football, uh, which obviously... Put us together and for this podcast. So, uh, and and currently and fortunately, I'm uh, devoting some of my working time across my areas of professional passion, performance, health, education, and research. 
some consulting to teams and organizations, spend time in private practice. And I'm also involved in teaching and uh, co-supervising a couple of PhD projects uh, in elite football. And uh, on top of that, I also serve as the chair of uh, Football Medicine Association Australia. I guess people hear about prevention and monitoring and um, they may get a little bit lost in it, but we hopefully can take us through a real clinical aspect in how that can be implemented in team sport effectively and efficiently. To get us started, I guess, to just understand some preventative strategies and how they fit in a system-based approach, can you explain what you mean by primary, secondary and tertiary prevention? I'll do my best to break that down and and, uh, put a clinical twist to that. My PhD explored athlete monitoring as a secondary prevention strategy uh, for both groin and hamstring injuries in elite football. The PhD also provided a bit of an evidence-based framework for a systems approach to prevention in those areas. And that's where primary, secondary, tertiary prevention fits in. And there are really three interconnected pathology-based stages. So they're linked to a continuum of prevention strategies that are aligned with the natural history of health-related states. It sounds complicated, but it's a long-established concept in epidemiology and public medicine. Uh, So the approach has been used in in the public health domain for more than 60 years uh, to combat communicable and non-communicable diseases or health-related states. So the approach itself is well embedded in both science and practice. So it's starting to emerge in sports. Uh, Jacobson and Timkia published a key paper in 2015 outlining how this uh, pathology-based continuum uh, can link with a risk factor approach in sports. Mick Drew uh, published a paper on how that continuum might apply to load for injury prevention in sport. And uh, my PhD is the first to kind of investigate and describe that framework and systems approach within elite football. So to answer your question more specifically, uh, having given you a bit of a background there, Uh, Primary prevention is associated with your athletes or players being in the healthy stage of susceptibility. So the focus in that stage is really to remove known causes or risk factors of a health-related state. So in sports, um, for the practitioners out there, an example of a primary prevention, primary prevention would be to remove low chronic workloads, ensuring high levels of sports-specific readiness. Another example would be to remove low hamstring or adductor strength through eccentric strength training. Uh, Secondary prevention uh, that follows is a two-step clinical process that occurs in the subclinical phase of a health-related state. Uh, Secondary prevention really involves clinical testing of health-related determinants or risk factors Uh, and a diagnostic follow-up assessment. So it's split in two steps. So in that stage, the continuum really aims to examine a player's health state to facilitate early detection of an impairment or increased susceptibility, if you like, to facilitate early management of that. And we want to limit the deterioration of health and in sport leading to time loss. So that's really what we're trying to, uh, to minimize. So the construct of uh, secondary prevention is distinctly different to fatigue monitoring in sport. If we look at examples of secondary prevention in the public health domain that people uh, might be able to relate to, uh, examples include bowel cancer screening programs, 
the pep, uh, pap uh, smear test and mammography. So they're all well-established secondary prevention processes where early detection and management are important considerations of a person's health state. So that's what we're trying to introduce into sport in that, in that uh, concept. Tertiary prevention uh, is a stage associated with the recovery, disability, and recurrence of a diagnosed health problem. So that could be a hamstring injury, for example. So this is where we as practitioners are treating and re rehabilit rehabilitating the injured player back to function and, and ideally performance. And in most cases, uh, tertiary prevention is an ongoing process. So we want to prevent recurring and subsequent injuries. But it's also there to manage players' increased susceptibility uh, from this point on of deteriorating health once they return to exposure, which is the sport, and in football particularly match play. Would you be able to give us a, an example, say, on something, let's say an athlete has a hamstring injury and you need to prevent further subsequent injury, ideally, uh, of, of, say, a different injury? Is there something you might be able to tailor in that rehab process? So you'd have to look at the, a lot of various uh, factors and, or determinants to hamstring health, uh, load being an absolutely obvious one. So, you know, have they trained enough uh, and are they performing well enough? Have you restored your hamstring strength to uh, pre-injury levels or perhaps better than pre-injury levels and so forth? Then you have a lot of uh, potentially clinical markers. Do you want to look at some functional markers, uh, some sport-specific markers like sprint speed and acceleration and so forth? So you, you look across a lot of data sets to inform uh, your tertiary prevention and readiness. So in the end, uh, you're looking at minimizing the risk of that same injury or, or something potential and different injury or subsequent injury to occur. So you look at diverse and, and multidisciplinary bits of information and data to make those calls. Moving on to, I guess, secondary prevention um, and where that fits for us. And I know a lot of uh, clubs and people will do sort of your screen pre-season or what have you. And initially in one of your papers, you looked at sort of unilateral adductor strength, abductor and adductor ratios in the Hagos in the pre-season. Uh, did you find anything from these studies? Uh, yeah, that study we, um, we, we published in... Um the Journal of Science and Medicine and Sport, JSAMS, for those that are interested to look it up. And as you said, we looked at uh, the hip and groin health of uh, 27 elite players over two years. So we were interested in their absolute and relative hip strength, and we investigated that at pre-season before they started training. And then we um, evaluated that at 22 monthly follow-up intervals as a secondary prevention strategy. And as you mentioned, they also completed the... Uh, hip and groin outcome score questionnaire, the hey guys at the same times. Um, so what we found there, Nick, was that uh, the players' hip and groin health and function were actually lowest at pre-season before starting training. The hey guys was significantly lower compared to all the other time points throughout that study. And the absolute hip reduction and abduction strength significantly increased by the second month of training. Um, so, in, in a sense, that led to improved and healthier hip adductor and abductor strength ratios. Uh, so, the approach also showed quite a bit of promise in reducing the groin injury burden by limiting moderate and severe time loss injuries in that cohort study. So, what type of ratio are we looking for? 
there's there's probably some mixed uh, ratios out there to consider. Christian Thorborg is one of the first ones after Tim Tyler to uh, report on ratios of adduction and abduction of the hip. Um, and he's shown that the mean isometric hip adduction ratios of 0.8 and also the eccentric ratio of about 0.9 or 0.92 were associated with current groin problems in football players. More recently, uh, Mosler looked at uh, the strength ratio in side lying with an eccentric strength test on, on about 400 asymptomatic professional players in Qatar. And, and they found that there was a normal range of adductor to abductor uh, strength ratios from 0.9 to 1.4. So we're probably looking for something in, in that range. Uh, in our study, we used a ratio equal to or less than 0.9 as a flag for potential groin health problems that required a follow-up as part of our secondary prevention strategy. So based on that, I guess there is value in uh, looking at our athletes from an ab and ad ratio early in pre-season or when they do attend to training and, and identifying if there may be an impairment there that we can address in follow-up and, and maybe part of our uh, preventive strategies. Is that right? Uh, there's only promise for early management, early detection and early management. And um, I mean, we already know that uh, once you um, develop uh, relatively substantial groin problems, they, they don't go away. And there's plenty of data to show that they present the subsequent uh, pre-season with ongoing groin problems. So it's definitely... Um, something worthwhile looking at in a elite or professional football setting for sure. So let's say we identified an athlete in pre-season who was maybe below 0.9 in add-to-ab ratio. Uh, what would, say, an intervention be? Um, often we individualize this, but from a general standpoint, what would an intervention be to maybe improve this for an athlete, say, between the ages of 18 and 24? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So... Um, if you uh, recall the uh, process associated with secondary prevention, the test itself is step one. So we, we're, we're dealing with potentials here. So step two is the clinical examination and, and a diagnostic or workout process. So, you know, that would follow. So, you know, is there a reason for this reduction? Is it a true reduction? Can we change it? How can we change it? Uh, is it exercise? Is it manual therapy? Is it what's the context around the presentation? So that will really dictate the intervention. Uh, if it is a true weakness, uh, we will just uh, use uh, similar multimodal interventions like uh, you would uh, for um, re active rehabilitation of a groin problem. So I think like the key thing there is traditionally you might just ah. Oh, it's below 0.9, give him some adductor strength or some abductor strength. But what you're doing there is really looking at the athlete uh, using your clinical reasoning skills and then moving forward from there into the intervention. 100%. There's no generic answer, which is uh, makes it very suitable to uh, elite sports. Uh, it makes it very hard to do research because they'd like to standardize and have generic intervention so you can measure that. So there's a conflict there for me as a clinical researcher, but uh, for practitioners, it's absolutely beautifully uh, suited. There's some really key takeaways there for practitioners working in sport to, to be able to use and implement. 
with one of your second papers, we looked at adductor power during congested schedules where you used a sort of five-second squeeze test. What were your key findings here? Yes, uh, uh, we looked at uh, a um, highly congested international tournament. We were interested in match, match congestion because it's associated with increased acute muscle and overuse injury, right? So we wanted to investigate potential effects of that uh, on players' groin health and function. Uh, this paper was published in the Journal of Sports Sciences for those that are keen to read the full story. Uh, and as you said, we tested uh, peak hip reduction torque and associated pain ratings with a five-second long lever reductor squeeze test. So we did this at baseline uh, the day before the start of a tournament. And then we took daily measures at the same time in place across the tournament. The team actually played seven matches in 14 days, so severe match congestion there. And as a nice aside, the team actually came away uh, with a winner's trophy from that tournament. So at least in this instance, daily athlete monitoring did not interfere with the team's success. So that was always nice. Uh, but the key findings of the study were that uh, as match, uh, sorry, as load accumulated during um, the tournament, uh, hip production power or torque actually reduced. So we identified a negative relationship with increase in load um, and a reduction of hip production function. In fact, 73% of the players experienced changed groin health states during that tournament, demonstrated by um, clinically meaningful strength reductions. And uh, the restoration of that adductor power and function could not be assumed at tournament's end. So players actually left the tournament uh, with significantly or clinically meaningful strength reductions. So it highlights a few things for practitioners. If your players go away to a congested international tournament, you want to you want to evaluate their groin health state on return to your club. Um, that might be common sense for some, but not for all. So it's an important practical thing to highlight there. This episode of the SportsMap podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU, which was recently acquired by Viacon. Used by leading biomechanic researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. It's unlike GPS in IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load by two small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors which quantify three main things. The intensity of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. I measure you works in military, pro and college coaches and athletes from around the world including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and Harvard University. If you want to know more about how I measure you can help optimize return to play for your athletes, head over to their website imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureu. And before we sort of touch on, I guess, uh, around those clinical changes and what have you, uh, you obviously opted for the long lever squeeze test um, when maybe in the past that's been traditionally done at sort of 45 or 60 degrees. Uh, why did we go the long lever test? And, I mean, can we use the other variations interchangeably? Uh, great questions, Nick. Uh, there's um, 
a range of reasons actually. Um, but firstly, the reason we used the five second long lever squeeze test is because it's a valid and reliable test uh, to establish elite football, football players' groin health and function very quickly. Uh, so Neil Light and, and Christian um, Thorborg tested the reliability in elite football players on this test and reported excellent absolute reliability. Um, so the long lever test is where we place resistance between the ankles and not between the knees, um, and the hips are, are at zero rather than flexed. So uh, doing so demonstrate um, the highest peak torque as well. So studies show that the main peak torque uh, are about 35 to nearly 60%, maybe 56% less um, using a short lever squeeze test in football players. So that's probably an important consideration for practitioners when they select the test to identify strength reductions. There's more evidence. I mean, Esteve Ernest uh, found that football players who had groin pain for six weeks or more in the previous season demonstrated greater strength reductions on the long lever compared to short lever squeeze testing the following pre-season. And on top of that, uh, uh, Thorborg has already shown that the pain response on this test correlates well with the HAGOS which in itself can differentiate football players with and without current groin pain. So all up, it makes this test a valid indicator of a player's groin health state. So for us, there were compelling practical and evidence-based reasons to support the selection of this test. And it really quickly evaluates a football player's groin health state. So you can't really beat five seconds. We see this type of test currently being used, say, let's say, if a team's playing regularly on a set Saturday, uh, the players might come in on a Monday or Tuesday and flow through some tests, maybe uh, the groin squeeze being one of them. What exactly are we looking for when we do this? And what would you classify as, as a significant change on a week-to-week? -week? And, and, and if so, how much is significant? Firstly, what we're doing, we're evaluating players' groin health states, number one. Within this construct, we're looking at groin health. So that's important. Um, so in that purpose, you know, we, we're using the two-step prevention, secondary prevention process. So you really have the option of testing for changes in peak torque and numerical pain ratings, or you can go for just changes in peak torque. So you'll remember at the beginning of the podcast, uh, we talked about step two and step one and two of secondary prevention. So the first step doesn't actually have to be diagnostic. It is the second step where we have a clinical ex assessment that should be diagnostic. So in that context, practitioners can reasonably leave pain ratings to step two and just look at um, uh, changes in peak talk, for example. So if we, if we go with that approach, what is a significant drop in strength? You have to go to the test's absolute reliability to find the answer, uh, particularly its minimal detectable change with 95% confidence intervals is really what informs the practitioner or what can be interpreted as a, as a genuine strength change, at least with 95% confidence. So without knowing the MDC 95, it's quite difficult as a practitioner to make clinical sense of the findings. Um, and in my opinion, I, I think a test without known or acceptable absolute reliability should really be disqualified from athlete monitoring. 
So the MDC from the five-second squeeze test uh, using a single maximal effort is 13.6-13.7%. So any change at that level or greater would be a genuine change. In our study, we, we were quite pragmatic in setting the cutoff to 15%, uh, just to make it a little bit easier in that busy environment of a congested tournament. Um, just to, I guess, take us through that process there, we have an athlete who might come in and, and he performs the five-second squeeze test and he's had a, a drop of 15 se- uh, 15%. Um, that might signify that he's going to come and chat to the physio. Uh, if you're a physio in that case, what are you looking for here? Yeah, your objective tests and conversation, What run us through a little bit of the process of what you would do in a, in a clinical setting. Well, the first step is, is to apply the test. You get your alert, let's say it's a 15, 15% um, reduction. So in our studies, we collected the data in the morning and then our subjects or players went to school. So in, in the construct uh, of the studies, they came back, uh, had a retest. If the retest was clear in, in the sense that um, the strength had restored, uh, nothing else happened. If it was still down at that point in time, a clinical examination took place. So we would do a standard clinical examination like most sports physios would do. What's a quick run through of your clinical examination look like? There's a combination of uh, simple uh, functional things like um, lateral hop. Uh, There's classical things like the modified Thomas test, uh, squeeze test, palpation, range of motion, so forth. And remember, we also had we also captured the Hagos at, at those times as well. So we ha- we already had a subjective, um, uh, well, really strong subjective data to, to go with that um, strength test. You know yourself when you when you examine the players one on one, they might actually uh, let you know that they had a bit of tightness and soreness in the adductor for a week or two, and that kind of helps. Um, clarify the situation a little bit but it's really the, the clinical findings that that and then that there really guides your decision making uh, in terms of triggering uh, what comes after the clinical examination which is really a shared decision making process on the minimal detectable change of say 15 percent uh, that we talked about earlier with the five second squeeze and we often get this question uh, quite a bit in the sense of are we looking here from just purely let's say in a week to week sports setting so are we looking at the change of 15 percent from week to week or are we looking at as a 15 percent drop from their max score that they achieved earlier in the season for instance so the MDC 95 it's really a test, retest, absolute, absolute reliability measure. So that's the construct of the test. Um, so as I said, um, in the congested study, we used it, the baseline data from the morning of day one of the tournament, and that's what we compared it to in that study. That was a tight two-week period. Within the two-season longitudinal co- cohort study, uh, we investigated the changes in strength to the player's previous test. Uh, and that's probably in the applied setting what we've done in, in we did a four-year hamstring uh, study and we looked at uh, uh, changes to the previous test. Uh, that might also be worthwhile um, for practitioners to consider looking at not only the absolute changes but also changes to a, a seasonal rolling average, for example, that might highlight some, some trends uh, for the practitioner 
And in, in practice, I find it really beneficial to also visualize the longitudinal data to complement the threshold alerts. If we see one week, let's just say 8%, and the next week 6%, and then maybe the week after 4%, you're getting these smaller drops, but those signs week to week may also signify something's going on. Is that fair to say? From a practical point of view, uh, I would agree with that. So uh, we, we have to understand that the test can only give us uh, something with confidence that is greater than its MDC 95. However, in the applied setting, you might have a play that just from a test to retest drops less than 15%, but in the course of three weeks, he might have dropped 25%. So remember that there's no harm in action that as a step one because the, the idea is early detection, early management. So all you're going to do is, is go, hey, is there anything going on? I want to clinically examine you. So that becomes your checkpoint. Based on this approach, you really do see that the, the physio owns that area of monitoring because where the actual clinical decision-making comes from is not so much just the flag or the drop-in strength, it's the clinical assessment and decision-making from there. Is that about right? That's a good point, uh, Nick. I'll probably qualify that with a couple of things, but uh, in, in essence, I, I agree. But I think it's important um, to just talk about ownership in sport and and for me i've always believed that the head coach or manager absolutely leads performance and what you and i do as practitioners and performance support team is really to support them the players and the organization that we work with so as such i believe that that collective really owns the operational components athlete monitoring included so i think that's important to, to put out there uh, but as you say one of the real benefits of this approach is discovered when we map the system. Uh, so go back to your primary, secondary, and tertiary. So you look at the system and, and the various interventions that goes to that. So when you map that, it really indicates that prevention and performance aren't at conflict at all. And it shows us really when the specific expertise of each performance support member or profession best ex execute their expertise, to facilitate performance health. So that's really critical. And in my experience, it can really help provide clarity of roles, the direction you're going in, how you communicate, and what the agreed goals are across that collective. So I'll come back to the secondary prevention example, as you, as you mentioned. Uh, because it is a clinical process, it does require expertise in clinical ex examination and diagnosis. It is a clinical process. So you need a clinician and a diagnostician required in that second step of the process. However, in the first step, which is really a technical process, it's administering the test. That's a technical skill. So really anyone adequately trained or skilled in performing the test reliably, remember reliably, can really do so irrespective of the profession in that first step of the process. All right, so we're going to uh, we'll take a breather there and we're going to move into uh, chatting about when you started looking at a bit of hamstring strength monitoring. Um, and in doing so, I guess, first of all, we'll get you to sort of touch on, I guess, how that test is administered and how you think it would be applied in a team sports setting. Um, and then well, I guess we can chat a little bit about what you found. Okay, yeah, that's true. We did um, do, uh, we looked at two studies um, really investigating the effect of match play on, on uh, 
what I call hamstring health-related determinants. They were published uh, in the Scandinavian Journal and um, one in the Physical Therapy and Sport Journal, if you want to look them up. In the first study, we looked at the uh, effect uh, of match play more acutely. We looked at isometric hamstring peak torque, active knee extension, knee flexion, hip, stick, hip extension, sorry, and ankle dorsiflexion flexion ranges of motion before and immediately after a single game and then 24, 48, and 72 hours post-match. Uh, and we found that the hamstring peak torque was significantly reduced post-match, uh, but had restored 48 hours later. Uh, and interestingly, the findings were quite similar after playing two games in three days. Um, so how can we test this, and what did we do? What tests did we do? Well, there's, there's several hamstring tests out there available for pr- practitioners to consider. Uh, so you have to look at your context and what questions you want answered. But we wanted an externally fixed test setup uh, mimic, that mimicking, we're mimicking the uh, body positions associated with terminal swing of the run, running face. So we designed and tested the reliability of that test uh, and we standardized the position to 45 degrees of hip flexion and 30 degrees of knee flexion. Uh, where full extension is is equal to zero degrees. Um, So we we published that study a few years ago in JSAMS. But what we do there is test isometric unilateral hamstring peak torque at a long hamstring length. And it it does have good absolute and relative reliability within uh, elite football players. So it meets the criteria there. The MDC 95 that we uh, that is of relevance here is 14%, and that's what we used in our studies. If you found most athletes return to baseline at 48 hours for their isometric hamstring strength, what do we take away from this clinically if uh, across the board all athletes are doing it, are recovering? Do we need to do the test, or are we doing that test and maybe identifying uh, those couple of outliers who maybe haven't recovered from the, from the match or match congestion? On average you'd expect your, your squad to be recovered at 48 hours based on our study results. So we're always looking at outliers. Yep. We're always looking for outliers. So I guess if, let's say, uh, this is 48 hours post, we've had one athlete who hasn't seemed to have recovered their, their strength back to baseline, um, what are we doing then? Uh, very, very similar to, uh, remember, we're still applying the secondary prevention principles and processes. So um, a player with unrestored hamstring function 48 hours post-match would go on to step two. So again, that's the clinical examination and, and possible diagnosis. If there was no injury diagnosed and perhaps strength is not restored on retesting, um, we would consider that player to be in a subclinical hamstring health state. Okay, um, so that triggers potential uh, indicated interventions that are certainly dependent on that specific context at that time and are very, very much uh, uh, individual to that player. So that's when we zoom out again and we look at a variety of information, data and multidisciplinary inputs. So really what follows then is a, is a shared decision-making process, Nick, that is informed by this uh, diverse and multidisciplinary data. So we're trying to assist the team in, in a, evaluating that player's hamstring health state and training status 
but it has to be in relation to the session plan. So what's going on that day? So uh, we're looking at potential uh, high-risk activities. So we, we were giving uh, special considerations to high-speed running, sprinting, acceleration and deceleration demands on that day. Uh, importantly, uh, I think this is important to, to mention for practitioners out there that uh, if we identified uh, five players and they were in the subclinical state, uh, they always participated in training. Yep. But they had individual plans implemented as required. And so the player cannot com continue completing any other interventions um, that's been indicated, and the next morning before training, we retest them again. So if you look at that process, it's not, uh, it's actually quite similar to return to play process after an injury. But what we're doing here is we're moving that step forward. So we're not doing it in tertiary prevention. We're actually doing it in secondary prevention to try to limit time loss, if that makes sense. Veld Performance are doing some fantastic things to improve human measurement through the development of their laboratory-grade technology built for everyday use in the field. Their equipment, that includes the likes of the Nordboard, Groinbar, Forstex and Human Track, provide objective measurements that are accessible to practitioners and athletes for whenever and wherever they need it. Veld Performance athlete testing systems are trusted by over 500 of the world's most elite sporting teams, clinicians, universities and defence departments. Born out of research here in Australia at the Queensland University of Technology in 2015, Veil Performance has a fantastic team of sports scientists, researchers, clinicians, designers, developers and engineers, all who are dedicated to improving human measurement. Learn more about Veil Performance at veilperformance.com. Now, um, I'm going to go back a step before we go forward. Now, for you, it would be pretty straightforward, but the clinical testing of the uh, that athlete, when he comes over to see you after that power hasn't restored, what would you be doing there? And um, secondary to that, you mentioned some of that data. Uh, what sort of data might you be looking at there? So we've been looking at um, a host of data, certainly load. Uh, we considered um, uh, the wellness data, psychological data, sleep data, nutrition data, strength training data. So we had input from a lot of different, that's where the multidisciplinary information comes in from. So we're trying to understand the present context and bring all the relative information that, that might assist in explaining this drop. And sometimes it might just be as simple as the player has been unwell and actually been sick for three days, uh, returned to fitness two days before the match and, and they ended up playing the whole match whether that was right or wrong they did and and their hamstrings are going to take a little bit longer to recover that week so it's understanding the context of your findings so that's why you need to zoom out i believe and looking at a variety of data sets so you remember you're looking at health determinants rather than just one single risk factor what sort of hamstring objective testing are you doing uh, for that athlete that may flag, as you mentioned, when he comes over? Oh, absolutely. Um, pretty standard clinical assessments. We already have a strength test, so we don't need necessarily need to uh, repeat that. So we might include some kind of range of motion, um, palpation, uh, all those things being clear. I usually, um, if everything is clear, 
uh, I usually actually get them to do uh, Askling's H test then and there as well, um, knowing that that might uh, give us quite a bit of confidence as well. Uh, so with hamstring testing, uh, how important is asymmetry in your hamstring strength and what is or what isn't acceptable in your opinion? Uh, that's a great question, Nick. Yeah. I, I believe the concept of uh, hamstring strength and imbalances and ratios as, as risk factors for, for these type of injuries in football are probably linked to, uh, to work by Crozier uh, that showed that uh, four or five times increased risk of hamstring injury in players that had a strength imbalance in, in at least two out of four of isokinetically derived strength criteria. That included eccentric hamstring differences of 15% or greater. So that's probably where some of that comes from. Uh, the importance of, of this as a pre-season test has, has recently been questioned uh, a fair bit. And uh, Brady Green, um, done your way, showed that um, in a recent systematic review and meta-analysis that its role in predict predicting these injuries in sports should probably be reconsidered. Uh, and I'll let you know that in our studies and in, in our monitoring in the applied setting, uh, we found that the preferred kicking leg is often significantly stronger anyway. So it means that most players or many players actually have strength and symmetries anyway. So in monitoring these um, hamstring strength tests for, for many seasons now, uh, we haven't actually paid any attention to hamstring strength symmetries in that setting unless the player has a history of a previous injury on that weaker side. Um, and applying that approach, we actually only had one hamstring strain in four years where the team played at 115 competitive, competitive games. Um, the incidence and, and burden of hamstring strains in that period were 16 and 11 times lower, respectively, compared to uh, a control group who didn't have any secondary prevention. Uh, so asymmetry in that, in that sense doesn't seem to um, be strongly indicated from my point of view. All right. Well, um, let's say I believe most athletes are more susceptible to hamstring injuries in a game compared to training. In doing this test, say early in the week, um, how does that help in reducing our injury risk come game day? I can understand with that process we went through how it maybe helps us on for that training session by potentially modifying them out of a little bit of high speed. But what about game day on a on a Saturday? Um, and yes, it is true that the incidence of hamstring injuries or higher during match play. However, if we look at data from the UEFA Elite Club Injury Study, uh, which involved about 36 clubs and 209 club seasons over 14 years, I think between 2001 and 2014, it actually found that training-related hamstring injuries had increased substantially in that period, but match-related injuries had remained stable. Uh, overall, they found that hamstring injury, injury rates had increased in that period as well. And for them, hamstring injury prevention uh, should really be a top priority in, in uh, elite football. And, and that makes absolute sense to all of us. Um, so if you look at it from a practical point of view, uh, Nick, uh, teams often schedule their football conditioning or overload training session on match day plus three. It is obviously dependent on when they play in the next game. 
And and sometimes in in the football, as being soccer, they actually play a second game on match day plus three. Uh, but let's stick with the training session, uh, the conditioning overload session being on match day plus three. It really involves high intensity, high load, match-like demands. So it really means that it's important for players to have restored their hamstring health states to meet those demands for that session on match day plus three. So if we can capture unrestored hamstring health states at match day plus two, it potentially provides us with a window of opportunity to assist or optimize restoration and also implement individual plans if required. So short term, that might involve less training related hamstring injuries and long term, uh, hopefully by improving players' sport specific readiness, it might actually reduce the player's match related susceptibility to hamstring injury. I guess an athlete can carry uh, some of that early signs of hamstring, whether it's a bit of soreness or tightness from a previous game into the following week without anyone really picking up on it. And maybe that's where the injury occurs. So uh, it certainly seems to uh, fit nicely. Um, I guess some people may argue around this sort of screening method, both the adductor five second squeeze and the hamstring isometric testing uh, in a team sports setting. Um, maybe more trouble than it's worth and with the information we're getting out of it. Um, what would be your response to um, these points that people may make? My response to them is that, yeah, I hear you and I understand that there can be challenges with implementation, no doubt. Uh, and some of the work I do these days is actually helping teams and practitioners review their frameworks and processes to identify potential barriers and opportunities within that context. But we now have very quick, valid, reliable and safe tests available to us that have shown to be acceptable to coaches, players and practitioners. And we have research that are showing promise and we have some emerging evidence in support of the approach. Uh, and that might together assist in reducing some perceived issues by practitioners. We certainly need more, more research, no doubt. Uh, but what, what I will say is that... Uh, if you work in football, where players are a thousand times more likely to suffer an injury at work compared to, let's say, a construction worker, where hamstring and groin injuries are the two most common and costly injuries to your team and players, where evidence shows that um, athlete unavailability reduces your team's likelihood of success and that the incidence and burden of hamstring and groin injuries has not improved for 20 to 30 years in elite football, I would consider alternative and complementary prevention strategies. Unless, of course, your team's injury record is consistently better than your opponent's and that you're winning more games. All right, well, there you go. Sounds good. So uh, what we've what we've done there, hopefully, is, is talked our way through... Um, primary, secondary and tertiary prevention and I guess uh, clarified areas around in that secondary prevention where physios and from a clinical standpoint can really uh, implement a nice systematic approach uh, using their clinical reasoning to hopefully reduce injury occurrence. Uh, would you have anything to add to, to that? Every context is different. Every sport uh, have their own big rocks. So, you know, if, if uh, we, have, we have shown that um, there's – good solid tests 
that are Asian and uh, we have a system that works within uh, football. But if you work in a sport that don't have uh, hamstring and groin injuries, don't waste your time. Go for your big rocks. However, the system, the system's approach is applicable to any health-related state. So don't always go for your big rocks where you're going to get your biggest gain would probably be my, my advice. That, that might sound obvious, but sometimes common sense gets lost. For people who might want to get in touch with you, um, how can they do so? Uh, they can uh, probably reach me on um, LinkedIn or, or Twitter uh, or contact you and you, you can um, pass, pass the details on. Yeah, we'll have uh, – happy to sort of do that certainly and we'll certainly have uh, those papers that we've spoken about there in our show notes. But before we do finish up for today, I guess, um, what's plans for you, both uh, career or, or research moving forward? I really hope to just continue practicing on uh, what I call the intersections of uh, performance, health, education and research. It's my professional passion, so I'd like to see that continue. Research-wise, uh, I'm uh, really excited about the two PhD projects that I'm involved in, uh, in elite football. And um, one of the things I would really like to see is the development of an independent injury surveillance program and club support within football, that is soccer, in, in Australia. Excellent. And uh, one question I'd like to finish with just to get a bit of an idea on um – who some of your greatest career influences and those you've learnt a lot of and that still look to for some guidance in learning and I uh, would love to hear who some of those people might be. There's been so many great people really, Nick, that I've had the privilege to work with. Uh, that's probably your toughest question of the evening, to be fair. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, uh, greatest career influencers, uh, probably um, Mary Toomey uh, for giving me uh, an opportunity in elite football all those years ago. Uh, she had an absolute common sense approach. Um, uh, she had a well-developed appreciation of load on performance and injury that really influenced some of my development at that stage. Obviously, the um, collective crew at the IS during my scholarship year, unbelievable knowledge and high-level thinking that really influenced my interest and career into clinical research. Uh, other standouts, uh, definitely Dr. Greg Lovell, amazing um, knowledge and wisdom of the sporting groin, uh, amongst other things. Always immense humility and time, and he has certainly influenced my career substantially, and he's one, he's one of the persons I'd, I'd look to uh, reach out to if I ever need advice. And I can't go past uh, my PhD supervisors, uh, Tanya Pisari and, and Christian Thorborg, who both did an unbelievable job in, in guiding this clinician through a PhD journey. Well, um, I'm really uh, confident our listeners will have enjoyed uh, your knowledge today in a, a certainly uh, really applying research, but also how it can actually assist practitioners um, in a sort of sports setting. So, Fantastic to have a chat, mate, and really appreciate it. So thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Nick. Absolute pleasure. Pleasure is mine.